America's Oldies But Goodies, Episode 5. Conway of Conway's Vintage Treasures at a Ball doing Dick show today. And if you're someone who, who loves history from the 60s, um, the TV shows, the, the movies, visit our website because we have a lot of treasures from the, the 60s and before. And some pretty exciting stuff on there from the original toys from the 50s and 60s to the movie posters to autographs of the famous stars. Uh, CDTreasures.com. That's C is in Conway's, V is in Vintage, Treasures.com. a great big beautiful tomorrow shining at the end of every day there's a great big beautiful tomorrow and tomorrow's just a dream away. hey everyone and welcome to another encounter with some groovy moments from the past we're visiting the 60s with host dick scopatoni whose pop group harper's bazaar had a hit record back then called feeling groovy He'll be talking with our guests about a decade that shaped a whole generation, not only with the most magnificent music ever made, but also the politics, protests, and pretty much everything that happened in the swing in 60s. So, Dick, who's on today's show? Thanks, John. I've always been fascinated with celebrity autograph photos and movie memorabilia, so I decided to track down the owner of Conway's Vintage Treasures, after I saw him on a Pawn Stars episode, which I'm going to ask him about today, we'll be talking with Kevin Conway about vintage memorabilia. Conway has been collecting vintage movie posters, historical and sports memorabilia, and rare celebrity autographs for over 30 years. While he was serving in the U.S. Navy aboard a nuclear-powered submarine, he happened to go to a local auction where they were selling rare historical autograph photos, various documents, and vintage movie posters, and he was just amazed at all this history that was available to the public. It was then that his collecting passion for this historical memorabilia was born. His company is called Conway's Vintage Treasures, 
And he's got stories for us today about great deals and not-so-great deals. Wait until you hear the one about the Wizard of Oz book. Kevin, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Dick. How are you? I'm doing just fine. I'm glad to have you on. Let's take it from the top. We'll, we'll just start talking about how this whole process begun for you. If you, you want to take it all the way back to when you were a kid and you began collecting coins and comics and things. Yeah, it all started, uh, you know, when we were kids. My brother and I uh, kind of got the collecting bug early. I think it started off with, I remember we started collecting stamps when we were a kid. And uh, my mother would take us to a, a local stamp store. I was probably seven or eight. And uh, we started buying stamps. And we got into the, the coins and then the comics and eventually baseball cards. And it eventually kind of uh, grew from there. You know, as I got older, I kind of, you talked about an auction I went to years ago and I remember they had a bunch of historical autographs, and I, I was just kind of amazed when I saw, like, I remember seeing a, a photo signed by Teddy Roosevelt and letters signed by presidents and uh, a photo signed by Humphrey Bogart, and I just thought, wow, I, I couldn't believe this stuff was for sale to the public. I thought, this shouldn't this stuff be in a museum, you know? <laughs> so uh, it was just kind of exciting, you know, and, and from there I got into other stuff, and I remember I started collecting some of the 60s, collectibles from some of the, my favorite TV shows from the 60s. Uh, I started collecting some of the toys, like from Green Hornet, Lost in Space, and the gun cards you used to collect from those TV shows, and Batman, and Star Trek, and everything. So it just kind of kept growing and growing, and almost became a collecting uh, addiction, you know. But uh, that's how it all started, and then it grew into a business, you know, and now it's a pretty major business now. Um, yeah. A lot of people all over the country know my my business and my website. Yeah, and that's cvtreasures.com. Yeah, C C V Treasures as in Conley's Vintage Treasures, but I just shortened it and called it cvtreasures.com. Yeah. yeah. What do you consider to be among your most notable successes? Well, I've had quite a few over the years. I remember uh, years ago I got my hands on a, uh, a fedora hat, one of Frank Sinatra's original fedora hats that he wore. Really? Yeah, and... The only reason I picked it up, usually I, I like to pick up stuff, stuff that's signed because I can authenticate signatures. Signatures can be authenticated, and especially if you have an expertise in that signature. But physical, tangible items like clothing, stuff like that, I don't pick it up unless I have solid provenance. And this was, this came from a very, very well-known source who was actually a celebrity himself, who was friends with Sinatra. And it, it was a pretty cool piece, and uh, I mean... Still on my website, but it's sold. But I have so many people ask me about it if it's still available. Yeah. And then I had another piece that I acquired and I sold recently. It was from the most popular member of the Three Stooges, Curly Howard. And there's, there's essentially nothing out there that has ever been sold that personally belonged to him because he was young when he died and <clears throat> he didn't have a lot of stuff. And what he did have, no one knows where it went. But there was one item that was a gold money clip and it was engraved Curly Howard. And apparently, Curly kept an on him all the time, and and it ended up uh, with Shem Howard, his brother. It ended up then, when he passed away, obviously, to his wife, who was Babe Howard. Another, again, the reason, only reason I picked this up was because it came with extraordinary provenance, a handwritten letter from Babe Howard to someone who asked her if she had any stuff for sale in her family memorabilia, and she telling the man stuff she has from Shem and his ties and his lighter and stuff like that. And then she says, I also have a, a money clip that belonged to Curly. And she says it has Curly's, Curly 
um, his engraving on it says Curly Howard. It's all written out in the letter that she wrote, and so it just came with extraordinary provenance. It was so rare. I, I think it may be the only personal item that ever belonged to Curly Howard that's ever, as far as I know, ever been sold. Hmm. Uh, well, stuff like that. Yeah, you know. yeah. You mentioned the the term uh, provenance. Now, collectors, of course, will know what that means, but for people listening that don't, can you tell, what does provenance mean? Provenance is, it almost goes beyond professional authentication. I mean, in the world of autograph collecting, it's always a good idea to get it professionally authenticated by one of the top authentication services. But provenance is something that, if you have the opportunity, comes from the original source where you can track it all the way to its origin. And that's in the world of art collecting. They really try to do that. And the same thing with, you know, high-end collectible memorabilia. So if I, for example, um, if I meet someone, and I'll give you the example just recently. A few weeks ago, a, a man contacted me, and he said in 1957, him and his family were invited to go to Las Vegas by their friend, Dr. George Kaplan, I believe his last name was, and to see a show at the Sands by Frank Sinatra. Anyways, George Kaplan happened to be Frank Sinatra's personal physician. He was his neighbor, and he was good friends with him. So when they got to Las Vegas, they actually got to go backstage and meet Frank Sinatra, and they sat with him for a while before he went on stage. And while they were there, this, this man, who was a 12-year-old boy at the time in 1957, he sat there and talked to Sinatra, and Sinatra took out two of the programs from the show, from the Sands Sinatra show, and he signed both of them. Anyways, he went on to tell me about more stuff they talked about, and then Sinatra went on stage, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, the man wrote me a detailed letter of what happened, and that is provenance. And, you know, provenance can take something that's just a signature or just a painting or whatever it is and turn it into something significant. I mean, that's what turns, like, for example, an, a, 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 a standard autograph into a piece of history. When you get that provenance, you know, it's a story people love to hear. They love to hear, how'd you get it? What happened? I, I tell you, I got so many customers that they love the prop. They love to hear the story more than the actual signature itself. They, they love to hear the story, and everybody does. Everybody loves to hear a good story, you know, and a Provenance provides that, and if I have the opportunity, and most of the time, unfortunately, you don't, but if I meet someone who was there when it happened, I always ask them, can you please write me a letter of Provenance? Tell me what he said, what he was wearing, and I always do that, and when I get that, to me, I mean, that's like more valuable than the autograph sometimes. It's like really nice to... I know that you carry all kinds of movie stuff as well. I'm curious, one of my favorite films, Godfather, have you, do you, have you had Godfather stuff come through? Yeah, Godfather, the poster, I, I always try to collect the one sheets, and those are really good sellers because obviously it's an iconic movie. But something I have that uh, I think I may be the only person is Marlon Brando never liked signing autographs. And no one's ever seen a genuine Godfather sign photo. And a couple years ago, I actually was able to acquire one. It was, um, And it's been, professional, it's been professionally authenticated by the top autograph authentication services. Apparently, it was acquired by a girl who worked at a delicatessen in Los Angeles that Brando would come into periodically. And he would sign for people on rare occasion that it seemed like he would only sign for people that were like working people. Like years ago, I, I, I got something that he signed for a cashier, and 
he seemed to have an affection for like the working man. Mm-hmm. And but if you walked up to him off the street and tried to get an autograph, he would just tell you to get away from him. He would never sign for anybody. But yeah, this this signed Godfather photo is it's actually an original press release photo of him getting made up for the role of Gian Corleone. And it's it's a close up and it's signed right on his cheek. It's it's just a beauty. Oh, yeah. That's great. Now, has that been sold yet? No, that piece hasn't been sold, no. Okay, so we could go to cvtreasures.com and find that? Yes. Okay. Yeah, you could just, okay. uh, and then we have, there's a search feature on the website. You'll see at the top of the site, there's a search box. You can type, whatever you type in there, if you type in Brando sign, Brando autograph, or Brando sign photo, it would it would pop right. And you had mentioned something to me the other day about Charles Schultz. What, what was the deal on Charles Schultz? Yeah, Charles Schultz is something, another celebrity I always try to get. What I like to collect on him, I enjoy collecting myself, and is also a big, big seller, is his original sketches. Time and again, once in a while, he would draw a sketch for someone, usually someone he knew or someone that ran into him. He wouldn't really do it through the mail. Uh, as far as I know, he, he wouldn't do these in the mail, mail requests. But if you met him or knew him, he would draw out a Snoopy or a Charlie Brown and then sign it. And, and those are really nice pieces to get. Those, I, mean, that, I mean, that's like original artwork. And uh, those are really, really hot sellers. I've always tried to get my hands on Schultz's original drawings and artwork whenever I have the opportunity. The original cartoon strips have just, you know, they're kind of going through the roof. Uh, I mean, there's some that sell for $100,000, so they're, they're the strip, the original strips themselves are, are tough to get your hands on now, unless you have an extra hundred grand in your pocket. Boy, it sounds like uh, you really have to be in touch with what's going on in the marketplace. I, I don't think I could keep track of all these things that you've got, but so it's probably almost like a constant research thing that you're going through when you're looking for different things, or when uh, I, I assume people also bring stuff to you as well, right? I get a lot of, I probably get 10 emails a day of somebody trying to sell me something. They want to know what their thing is worth. And, you know, and 95% of the time, it's usually, unfortunately, nothing. But once in a great while, you'll, you'll get a good uh, a good lead. Like a, a couple years ago, I had a man call me, and his uncle worked for um, William uh, Randolph Hearst. Oh, okay, yeah. He was, he was his right-hand man. I forgot the guy's name, but it was the guy who was... And, and I, you could look it up online. But anyways, this guy was a nephew, and he had three letters from Harry Houdini written to this man's uncle. And the guy said, yeah, I just want to sell them. I said, oh, what do you want from me? Give me a price. And I bought them all. And, and they weren't just standard Houdini say, oh, here's my autograph letter. I mean, they were. he was talking elaborately about each letter. He talked about where he was. And one of them was, I'm in Montreal. You know, I, I broke my ankle, blah, blah, blah. And anyways, what's significant about that is it was it was in Montreal, I believe, when Houdini, he hurt his ankle, broke his ankle, but he also invited someone up on stage to punch him in the stomach, which led to, a couple of days later, him dying. Oh, they think They think it ruptured his appendix when he let, he used to let people punch him in the stomach, and what he would do is he had a way of tightening his stomach so that he wouldn't feel it. It was just one of, one of his, uh, uh, I guess, one of his tricks that he would do. He would say, anybody can copy and punch me. But before he was able to prepare himself, the guy just punched him, without, caught him off guard. And it really, really hurt him. 
it was soon after that, I don't know how many days after that, that he ended up dying from appendicitis. Jeez. Yeah. Wow. You know, speaking of Houdini, there was a couple of other stories we talked about. One absolutely fascinating one. Can you talk about the whole hiding Houdini thing that you went through? Oh, yeah. Uh, most people probably heard of the History Channel TV show, Pond Stars. They contacted me a, a couple years ago, and they were asking me to come on the show because they found my website, and they were pretty excited, the stuff they were seeing. And So they invited me a couple times. At the time, I, I, I couldn't go. I, you know, I was busy, and I didn't want to fly out to Las Vegas. So they kept calling me and emailing me, uh, the production company, for the, for the show. And so eventually I went out there. And they just picked stuff off my website that they wanted me to bring. And at first, they picked like seven or eight items, but I said, I, I can't bring all that with me. So we agreed on, I think, three items. So I, one of the items they picked was um, a Houdini signed book. And it was a book where he signed it like three or four times. And he signed it for someone he knew, and he wrote notes in it and everything. And so we did a, that was one of the episodes that I did with Pond Stars. I did with uh, Rick. Harrison, mm-hmm. and uh, and they titled the show Hiding Houdini, and the feature of the show was my, my segment of the Houdini book, and um, yeah, it was a lot of fun doing the show, and um, of course, Rick, you know, he wanted it for nothing, like he does everything, he yeah. it for a fraction of, <laughs> of the value, you know, uh, you tell him you want 5000 Did you eventually sell it to him? What was the result uh, of that? You know, surprisingly, I had it sold before I left. Really? Yeah, I had a customer who already wanted it. And he already was going to pay me full price for it. But I told him, I said, I'm already committed to Pond Stars. And I said, but I said, I don't think you have nothing to worry about because Rick is not going to pay me what I want. <laughs> you know, I know he's going to probably, I'm going to tell him I want 5000 He's probably going to offer me 1000 You know, I just yeah. know that's how he is on the show. Yeah. And sure enough, that's what happened. So, yeah, it was already sold before I left. And I think it made it more exciting to the guy, the customer, because now his item is going to be on national TV in front of 6 million people, you know. <laughs> so he so found that pretty exciting. Uh, when they were filming that segment, the Hiding Houdini segment, which I think, I'm assuming you could probably Google that, uh, Pawn yeah. Stars Hiding Houdini. But when they were filming that, was there any regular customers walking around or was it done in a separate space? or How did, how did that happen? Yeah, they have a, uh, a mock-up pawn shop in the back. And you'll have noticed if you see the show, there's times when you're looking back at the guys and there's like metal shelving. That's the real pawn shop. But if you're looking back and you see the brown shelving, that's a, a mock-up shop where they, because they can't they can't shut the shop down every day because a lot of people come in there and it costs them a lot of money to close the shop. So they have in the back a mock-up shop where they do uh, the show back there and tape it. It's just like it's just so they don't have to shut the whole shop down and kick everybody out every time they're doing it. But 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 the the Houdini book, that was done in the real shop. Okay. Yeah, that's the real shop. They they taped it in the real. You notice the metal shelving in the back of Rick. That's the that's the real pawn shop. Okay. All right. Yeah. And so so there were other customers walking around and and they don't yes. they don't bring that all to a halt. It's just they just keep going. Turn the cameras on and keep going. Well, we went in there, I think I told you, we went in there, I want to say two years ago when we were in Vegas. I just had to see the place because I watch Pawn Stars all the time. And I was a little surprised at how, actually, how small it was. You never really think about that on TV. You see it on TV and you just don't think about the size until you actually walk into the real place and you realize how, how small it was. So, anyway. Yeah, and you should have a line, a big line outside of people to get in. 
They did. I'm trying to remember when we went if we had to wait to get in. Uh, I think we may have had to wait to get in. But anyway, it was a, it was a it was a neat stop that we made. Hey, I feel a song coming on. Let's take a break, maybe a quick cappuccino, and we'll return shortly. curious uh we'd also talked about some of the um things from the 60s that conway's vintage treasures has on the website uh anything come to mind about some of the 60s related items that you have or you've seen yeah i um i collect a lot of the original toys from the 60s like i was lost in space i mean i can remember being just a, a, a kid in kindergarten age you know begging my mother to let me stay up to watch Lost in Space. I was, like, obsessed with Lost in Space. <laughs> I had to watch it, and it was just crazy. And so today I I always look for stuff like they had a Remco robot back in 1966 that came in a really cool box with on the front a litho of the, of the cast and, the, and a picture of the robot. And so anytime I see that out there, I try to get it. And then shows like the Munsters, you know, the toys that came out in the 60s of the Munsters. I mean, some of those just... Monsters. I don't know what it is about monster collectors, but they just pay crazy money. I think I like a, 15 years ago on eBay, I saw a, a paint by numbers kit that was already in the original wrap, bubble wrap that had never been opened. Went for like I think it was like seventeen thousand dollars. Like yeah, yeah, but something that sold for twenty five or thirty five cents back in nineteen sixty four. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just crazy money. Um, but I. You know, like I recently picked up the Herman Munster talking puppet with the original box. It's like a, a puppet, and you pull the string, and he talks. Oh yeah, different phrases. And I just, matter of fact, just acquired that with with the original box. And you know, the the boxes are actually worth more than the actual toy, isn't? Because that? every well, everybody threw the boxes away, so the yeah. boxes are far more rare. Yeah, like the Herman Munster. Um, uh, talking puppet doll. You rarely see an original box. You'll see repros all the time on eBay and stuff, but. But the original boxes are just very, very rare because, like I say, everybody threw them away or they destroyed them, you know? Yeah. So uh, the boxes actually sometimes go for more than the actual toy. You were talking about a number of different things when we spoke earlier, and there's some organizations, and all I've got here I wrote down initials, PSA, JSA, UACC. I'm assuming these are all, what, authentication places? Well, the PSA. JSA, those are uh, autograph authentication services. Those are pretty much the most uh, reputable ones. I mean, there's been a number of them out there, but these are the two that the autograph industry have pretty much settled on. If you look at the major auction houses and the most reputable dealers, these are the only two they use because they've proven over, you know, the last 20 years to be the most reliable. And, you know, like 
everybody, most collectors have a certain area of expertise. Like I, this certain, like I do vintage Hollywood. There's certain signatures I've developed a high level of expertise on over the years, like Sinatra and some of the old vintage uh, movie stars, and and I can look at something that, and and I know right away if it's real or if one of their secretaries signed it or if it's an outright forgery. And when you see other authentication services passing stuff you know is bad, they kind of lose their credibility right right away. And a lot of those that were out there, that's what was happening. They were passing stuff that you knew that's fake. So those authentication services and so-called forensic experts that they would call themselves, some of them, they didn't know autographs. You know, they'd say, oh, I'm a forensic expert. I'd say, yeah, but you don't know autographs because that's, that's a blatant fake. I mean, that's a well-known secretarial Frank Sinatra, and you're issuing certificates of authenticity. Well, these two services, JSA and PSA, you, you, you started to follow them, and you saw very few that bad stuff that would get by them. I mean, if, and you saw if something was certified, pretty much most of the time it was it was authentic, you know. So that's why pretty much it looks like the industry settled on those two authentication services, you know. The UACC is a, it's an autograph club that's been around since, I think, like 1965. And they have something called a registered dealer program, and you have to have a unblemished reputation. In other words, if you're a dealer out there and you're selling, you've got a website and you're selling forgeries, you cannot be a UACC dealer, period. You'll, and if you are, you'll get kicked out. Okay. So it's a nice thing about it is it's, it's an organization that gives you some credibility. Because, if, again, if you're a blatant, like, you know, there's one guy in New Jersey that sells just blatant forgeries on his website. I mean, they're just obvious. I mean, he could never be a UACC registered dealer. He, there's no way, you know. Yeah. I'm sure he's tried, but they probably turned him down. It's, it's just another added level of security or authenticity um, confidence. Sure. You know? Yeah, and in this kind of business, I can see where that would really be something important to have because of the, all of the forgeries that are floating around out there. You know, while you were talking, I uh, looked up on the, your website, the Sinatra at the Sands one. Oh, yeah. That's great. Yeah. I think it's fourteen fifty is the price on it. But that's a really neat signature. And these things blow up on the page, listeners, by the way. Uh, go to cvtreasures.com, and when you see a listing, I looked up Sinatra, and there's a lot of Sinatra stuff. But when you see a listing, click on the picture, and it blows up to a full size on the page so that you can yeah. actually get an idea of... Um, you know what's nice about that piece you just mentioned? I got that from the man that I, I think I just mentioned to yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, right. Example. That was one of his pieces, and he writes a great letter that's included with the piece which makes the story is what makes it such a fabulous item. It's the story that, like I say, it's, 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 it's what takes just the signature and turns it into a piece of history. It's the provenance, you know. That, that letter of provenance makes it that now that story that tracks that and what happened and when he was there talking to Sinatra, now that's a piece of history with that, with that letter, you know what I mean? Um, it's just it's fascinating. You know what? In spite of all of our successes, uh, most of us know that life is not all a bed of roses. I'm going to ask you if you can tell me or give me your best failure story. What didn't work? Oh, uh, the one I can never forget about is probably about probably about 15 years ago. There was a guy who was selling a Wizard of Oz book signed by pretty much everyone in the cast. He was selling it on eBay, which right away usually should give you a red flag. Yeah. You gotta be very careful on eBay. That's where you'll find a lot of the forgeries. Anyways, it looked pretty good when I saw it. I got overly excited 
because I know the last one that sold sold for over $40,000. And this guy, I think, wanted 8000 for it. And so first mistake I made is I drove all the way to New Jersey from Massachusetts, and I gave him a check. I picked up the book. And when I got back, I started looking more at the book, and then I started comparing it to the one that sold maybe a year or two ago that was a genuine example, and I started to see something that made me break out in a sweat. Mm. I started to look and notice it looked like there was some tracing that was done in the one I had. And anyways, I sent it off to uh, an auction house, and they sent it to one of those authentication services I mentioned, and it, it didn't pass. It did fail. Jeez. And so I contacted the guy. Of course, he wasn't going to give me my money back. And and then I made a mistake of giving him a check instead of using PayPal. And I hired a lawyer and, you know, sued him. And I got most of the money back, but he wouldn't give me all of it back. And, and for me, the cost of me going to court and hiring an expert witness would have been exorbitant. So we, I lost a little money on it, but it was, you know, it was a lesson learned. I learned sometimes when you go through something like that, you, you learn so many different lessons and I, it was like a, an expensive education for me, you know. Sure. You mentioned that you use PayPal. Uh, what's the deal on PayPal? If, 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 you, if you need to get your money back, it's easier to do than... Yeah, what happens is if you pay with PayPal on eBay and if, you, uh, if it fails authentication, you just ask the seller for a refund. If they don't, you go through PayPal and... Almost every time, you'll get your money back. You just send it, you return it with tracking and everything. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, that's, it's a good level of protection. And it must be more of a level of protection than a regular credit card. I think on credit cards, to some extent, there's a way to get your money back. I've never had that happen to me, but I think it on, you know, Discover and Visa and MasterCard. And, yeah, you yeah. can contact your bank or whoever issued your card and, and try to uh, uh, dispute the charge. And a lot of times, they will reverse the charge if... You return it, but um, PayPal is even a higher level because they'll, they'll return it. You know, they actually have power over the buyer because the power needs to use PayPal to collect money if he's selling on eBay. So, We were talking a little bit ago about stuff from the 60s, and I guess we could all say we remember back in the day when we were as fit as a fiddle back at that age, but now we're aging baby boomers, and we probably no longer look much like Jack LaLanne. How's your health today? Pretty good, knock on wood. You know, I go to the gym every day and, um, you know, can't complain. So, thank God, nothing. Yeah, that's good. Yet. I hope it stays that way for a while. Yeah, I, yeah, so do I. I. And I think I'm doing okay, although I've had type 2 diabetes for a while. A lot of people have that, although it hasn't really impacted me, but I've had it for a while. But a lot of the people that I talk to now that we're up in the 60s and, and early 70s age range, uh, that's when the, the machine starts to, that's when you get all the replacement parts put in. Yeah, I have a few more years to get there, but um, I'm still in my mid-50s. So. Your mid-50s. Have your musical taste changed since the 60s? What kind of music do you listen to now? Yeah, surprisingly, surprisingly, no, not really. I mean, I grew up being exposed to the big, big band music, you know, like Frank and Dean and and that's what I like today. You know, I always tell people I probably should have been born 20, 30 years earlier because that's the music I like. I do like country, though. I am a country music fan. I, I like country music because, again, unlike a lot of the other music, country always tells a story. You can actually listen to it, and you can actually hear a story going on when you listen to a country song, where a lot of the other songs, they're either screaming too loud, and you can't quite hear what, what the theme of the song is. And With country music, I... I can always hear a good story going on. You actually almost can picture, you know, like there's a song out there about a kid who was brought up as an as 
him and his mother, it was just them two, they were single, and then his mother met someone, and the kid was so happy, he had a dad now, and it's going on. And you almost picture the kid being seven years old or five years old, and his mother meets this new guy, and at first he doesn't know what to think, and the guy turns it out to be just a, better than his biological father. Yeah. You know, the guy was terrific, and he, and he talked about when he grew up and when he is standing there with his stepdad, and they're looking at the, the, his new baby now after he got married, and there's a line in there I'll never forget. He looks at his stepdad, and he says, I can only hope to be the father that you didn't have to be. Huh. And it just gives me chills when I even say it. You know, it just stuff. That's why I like that kind of music, because it tells you a story and kind of reminds you of things you've gone through in life, you know. You know, it's interesting, and you mentioned story. Story is the basis for a lot of great artistic works, great movies tell great stories, great songs lyrically uh, do. Nowadays, the value of lyric writing, uh, I think, is really just sort of a disappearing art. Um, it seems to be, and I, I really don't can't understand most of the lyrics in, in today's contemporary music, but from what I'm able to glean, it sounds like words that might be the first thing that comes to somebody's mind. They hit the page, they get incorporated into a song, and then it goes from there. But really, yeah. great lyric writing does tell a story, and it takes a while to craft a good lyric. You just mentioned one line. That line didn't just pop into somebody's head. It takes a while to, to craft those kind of things. We really don't see stuff like that nowadays, uh, uh, except for, like you mentioned, country. You know what, Dick? It's funny you say that because um, last night I won at auction this really cool. I don't know if you remember back in the early days, like my dad and my grandparents would talk about when they go to the the, the the ice cream store and they'd get a soda pop or something like that, and it'd be like little syrup dispensers on the counter where you could push it. Right? And I picked up this. It's called a Zip Zippo Cherry Syrup Dispenser, and it's from about 1910. And it went on the counter, and it's story behind the whole thing is just so cool that when I'm writing the description for my website, which should be up today or tomorrow, I mentioned that, you know, back in the day of my parents and grandparents, kids would go to the ice cream store and they'd talk to everybody that would come in because the kids love to hear a story, Dick. They love mm -hmm. to hear a story. And they would talk to everybody. Today, they don't want to be bothered because their faces are so embedded in their electronic gadgets that... I don't even want to, I don't want to interrupt a kid. Right. I don't want to interrupt his cell phone addiction. You know what I mean? Sure. I mean, they don't, they don't want to hear story. They just want their faces in their face, in their, in their, in their uh, electronic gadgets. They want to be on Facebook wasting time. You know, I got, I got a young daughter. And I, I won't even give her a phone until she's like a lot older, you know, because I said to her, no, because once you get a cell phone, you stop talking to people. You stop talking to people. It's not personal anymore. And people, they don't want to communicate anymore. Now it's just what they can get off the, off the electronic gadget. Well, it's interesting, and you use the word communicate. The element of communication, which has always been important, it, doesn't, it really doesn't have to be in showbiz. Any kind of communication can be in politics. It can be anywhere. But the value of communication in terms of being able to move forward, get things done, or appreciate things, really has been curtailed to the extent that when young people are communicating 
uh, and they're typing on their telephones. They're communicating just to one person at the other end. Also, when they're communicating on Facebook, of course, they're communicating to thousands of people. But I don't believe the interaction value of communication, I talk, you listen, you talk, I listen, that value seems to be lost. So, And you're right. People don't want to hear the opposing side. And, and I don't want to get into politics, but just as a brief example, I mean, depending on what side you're on, they don't even want to hear the other side. You know, they don't, they don't want to hear it. You know, they don't, they, they're intolerant and they don't want to hear the other side's opinion and they just want to shut you down and, and, and drown you out. And, and what's interesting about that, just as you're saying it, it occurs to me in terms of not wanting to hear the other side, there is a very odd kind of value in having the ability to go online and say some of the most rotten things that you can say <laughs> yes, about somebody. Absolutely. And never have to worry about a response. No. You get you get your side out and that's it. Oh yeah. You know, they just cow, they cower behind their computer and they don't have to worry about the ramifications yeah. and they can say whatever they want and be nasty and as nasty as they want and get out all the in, inner I call it inner venom, you know, spot that's in there anyways. It's just this is their way to get it all out, you know. And you know what? That's what makes collecting even more exciting because that's why collectors love to collect this nostalgic stuff because it brings them back to a day when we talked to each other, when we, when we were more civil to each other, when, when we had far more important things. You know, you go back to uh, uh, when my, my grandparents were around and, you know, my dad, and they were, they, what they would do when they were kids is they'd get out of high school and they'd go into service. They'd go serve in World War II or mm-hmm. my dad served in the Korean War. And, and, and now they go to college and if they're upset, they have to go to safe spaces. They have to get a day out of school because they're upset because the person who won the presidency isn't who they wanted, and they're all upset. Right. I, I said to my wife the other day, say, God help us if we have to go to war again, yeah. because if the millenniums are what we have to depend on, we're all in trouble. <laughs> That's true, and you know, it's funny, as you talk about it, when I first started doing this show, the idea was America's oldies but goodies, the 60s. But I'm realizing, boy, with every interview I do, how many things have changed. That's something I want to ask you about. But before I even ask you that, let's take a quick break and listen to some music here. We'll be right back. Every night I sit here by my window. Watching lovers holding hands and laughing And thinking about the things we used to do Like a walk in the park Like a kiss in the dark Like a sailboat ride What about the night we cried Things like a lover's vow Things that we don't do now Thinking about the things we used to do. Memories are all I have to cling to. What has been your most challenging experience, regardless of whether you achieved it or not? Well, my, my, my challenging experience is always going up to the next level. In other words, you know, when I first started collecting, I couldn't even afford a, a like, I, I sell the vintage movie posters and the lobby cards, you know, the old lobby cards that used to be in the, you'd walk into the lobby of a movie theater and see all the upcoming movies, and they'd be on these little 11 by 14 inch posters, and they were called lobby cards. Mm-hmm. And um, they don't use them ever since 
the big show, showcase cinemas and the big cinemas put all the mom and pop theaters out of business and monopolized the industry, you know, 30 years ago. You don't see those type of posters anymore. But I remember I couldn't even afford a $50 post uh, a lobby card, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And, and then eventually I started buying stuff and I'd, you know, buy something for 50 bucks and sell for 100 and And I started making money selling and, and that kind of fed my collecting habit. And so I always wanted to always go to the next level. Like now, you know, I have some really valuable posters, um, high-end stuff, but, like, I wish I could go to the next level. Like, you know, I, like th- there's an auction coming up where they have a Babe Ruth original contract that he signed in 1935. Maybe they've got a photo of him signing it uh, with the owner of the Yankees. And the starting bid's 250000 Oh, jeez. that's a little above what I can... <laughs> Yeah. Go after, but I wish, like when I say I wish I'd go to the next level, that's the kind of stuff I wish I'd get my hands on, you know? Yeah. But it's kind of tough to to jump to that level, you know? Well, at that point, you're, and I'm not sure how many dealers, other than the most obvious auction houses, uh, are can really get into that stratosphere. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I would have to have a client that, yeah client that would want that. Sure. Know? Well, now, and I jump past the other question we were talking about. Let's go back to it for a minute, see if there's anything else there. What do you see as some of the biggest differences between the 60s and today? Years ago, even in the 80s, when I first started collecting, you know, when I started collecting around, what, 1981, I used to go to collector shows. It would always be a lot of collector shows going on. And it was kind of cool because you go to meet all the collectors, you see all the stuff the dealers set up at the tables and stuff like that. And probably I noticed when eBay came out in the 90s, you saw a gradual decline of the shows because now people could, an, an item that I, I would take me 10 years to find, I, and, I, and I used the example of the, the Lost in Space robot. <clears throat> now I would never, I think I saw it a show one time, and it wasn't in the original box, it was just the robot. And I remember the guy wanted $800 for it, and this was back 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden eBay came out, and now you'd see three, four of them for sale. You know, everybody in the world that had one stuffed in their attic or something would put it on eBay. So oh. now all of a sudden you had all this available to you at the click of a button. Yeah. And so the shows, why go to a show anymore when I can find what took me years to find in an instant now. You know, again, we go to that instant gratification thing with the cell phone. Now we don't have to work for it anymore. It's it's too easy to Mm. find. And that's a big difference is technology has taken some of the fun away from interacting at the shows, even though they still do have shows. It's not as much as they used to, you know. Yeah, and again, it's also, like we were just talking, part of the value of communication in general. So you have people coming together where the process isn't where you just go somewhere to buy something and leave. You go there, you talk with other people. There's a whole interaction that goes on until you get to something like an eBay where there's no interaction. I mean, you don't even know. You know other people are bidding on it. You don't know who they are, and you certainly don't talk to them, that's for sure. Right. So, yeah. You know, you could get, you could could hear the stories, you know. You'd like, you'd see something you like, you'd say to the guy sitting there, oh, where'd you get that? Oh, you know what? I got that from a 90-year-old guy, and I went to his house, and you wouldn't believe the stuff he had in his house, and now all of a sudden you're hearing this incredible story, you know, right there in front of the guy at the show. And you don't hear that on eBay. You just you just click buy it, buy it now button or you bid, and that's it. So times are changing. They just keep moving on. What Just talking about today, what's happening for you now? What's the future look like for you? Where are you going? What are you getting involved in? Well, I'm always, you know, upgrading the website, always 
I look for really the, the rarest stuff. I told you, like last night, I, I wanted an auction. This really, really rare, very, very rare syrup dispenser from about 1910. And you'll see it on my site in, in a little bit. I'm going to probably put up today. Um, but I'm always looking not just, you know, my primary themes are uh, vintage Hollywood, like autographs, the movie posters, and then the rare autographs, historical autographs. Um, you know, I mean, you, you can find anything from, you know, John Kennedy letters and books I've had signed by him. I've had Abraham Lincoln signed documents and and then vintage Hollywood sports. And I also um, like, I'm getting, I'm getting more into vintage photography, but type one photography. What I mean by type one is photography that, that was taken and developed at the time of the event. They have photography now where they grade into four categories, type one, two, three, four. And type one is a, like a period one. They call it period one photo where it was actually taken at that time for example, a, a Babe Ruth photo from him from 1917 while he was on the Red Sox. The photo was taken in 1917. It was developed in 1917. The back of the photo has date stamps and press release stamps all over it in the back. That's the kind of stuff I love and I, I look for now, that historical photography. Mm-hmm. To it as. Yeah. I'm getting more into that. I recently sold a Merrill Monroe photo that was taken by the guy who he was the last photographer to have a photo, Marilyn Monroe, and he photographed her two weeks before she died on Santa Monica Beach. He did a whole shoot of her, and I got one of his original photos mm-hmm. with his photographer stamp and date stamp on the back of the day he did it. So, I mean, that's like, that's a piece of history. That's pretty incredible. What did you tell me about, and I haven't, I hadn't heard of, the, of this, and matter of fact, I'm not sure if it's even happening yet, but you it kind of piqued your interest a little bit. Collectors looking for paintings that include classic Hollywood somewhere in the painting. Is that just beginning to happen, or are you seen that stuff? Or? That's something I just kind of ran across uh, down here in Florida where I live. Is we ran into an art gallery, and uh, it was a big... Um, kind of in, in, inside the gallery was a section where they were doing a, a, a show and the artist done all these really nice paintings, beautiful, beautiful paintings. And like, for example, he had one that was a Star Wars related painting and then he had another one that was a nice painting and it had the Wicked Witch of the West in there and it was pretty, pretty exciting paintings. I had never seen anything like that before. So it's something that I, I just recently noticed, and this is a relatively young artist, I mean, he's probably in his early 30s, so it's interesting how classic Hollywood is, is, it's always going to be here, and maybe even more so as we move on, that, you know, there are people that are going to always want to go back and look at Hollywood history, just like they look at sports history. I mean, some of the biggest collectibles today are, you know, like, if you can get, a, if you can get your hands on anything baseball-related from the 1800s, it's, it's, it's like gold, mm. you know, because when baseball started so it's the same with Hollywood people are always going to go back I mean yeah, we could be here a hundred years from today and we're going to still hear about the Wizard of Oz I have no doubt in my mind that we're always going to hear about the Wizard of Oz you know just for a second I want to mention again uh, about your website cvtreasures.com I'm on it right now it's a great website are you involved in uh, maintaining the website do you put anything up yourself or do you have somebody yeah I do everything myself you do do everything myself yes great website cvtreasures.com so hopefully the listeners will check it out there's just a lot of really interesting things on there so 
Well, I have yeah. to tell you, it's been, uh, what are we looking at, almost an hour. It's been a good hour. You've got so much to talk about. Yeah. We probably could do three shows and just go on and on. But I appreciate being able to check in with you, get all this stuff on tape and put it out to the listeners. And Yeah, great. We shall stay in touch. I want to follow your website and see what's going on there. And uh, But for today, again, thank you, Kevin. Yeah. Great job, and I hope that we can talk again soon. Great, thanks. Website, America's Oldies But Goodies.com, and we feature a lot of vintage merchandise available for sale. There's an item which I think is going to attract some real attention. It's a John Lennon signed caricature of himself, something he drew, and it's a pretty rare item in very good condition. Also, speaking of big time rock stars, if you're an Elvis fan, You've got to see this Aloha from Hawaii framed gold record. Actually, two 24-karat gold-plated records. Check them out at americasoldiesbutgoodies.com. You can also email me with your suggestions. For example, what guests would you like me to have on the show? Go to americasoldiesbutgoodies.com and check the contact page where you can generate an email to me. I'd love to hear from you with any ideas that you've got. So please be in touch and make sure to check out americasoldiesbutgoodies.com, not only for the vintage merchandise, but you can listen to our past shows there as well. Until next week, keep your face in a smile. It makes everything worthwhile. Bye-bye. You've been listening to America's Oldies But Goodies with Dick Scapatoni. If you've got any questions or suggestions, send us an email. The address is dick at americasoldiesbutgoodies.com. Join us again next week for more memories from the good old days. In the words of Jerry Garcia, what a long, strange trip it was. The Swingin' 60s. I'm John Berg. See you then.